Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Patrick Sharma about his study of Robert McNamara's tenure as president of the World Bank in the 1970s, entitled Robert McNamara's Other War, the World Bank and International Development. Patrick, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mark. Good to be here. It's good to have you. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Oh boy, uh, myself. <laughs> I am a. I I went from being an academic historian to now a tax lawyer, and I think that part of the reason I made that transition is because of Robert McNamara and the World Bank. Um, really interesting. Talk, yes, uh, because, I mean, we can talk about it more in the in the show, but. Uh, you know, the World Bank is involved, among other things, in advising countries about their fiscal policies, their tax and spend policies. And one of the things that emerged from the research that I did for this book and and the, my broader reading about the World Bank and international development is the importance of, um, of fiscal policy really to, to everyday life around the world. And I was looking for a job um, as a lawyer. And I thought, huh. Tax is one part of that equation, a big part of that equation. It's where a lot of interesting politics happens. It's where a lot of, today, a lot of interesting work at the World Bank and the IMF with respect to development happens, advising countries on their uh, tax policies. And I thought, why not try to combine my broader interest in development with um, something that could uh, give me a paycheck. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm now a tax lawyer. I'm now a tax lawyer, but I have a very active interest in these broader issues of development and um, and, and and tax policy therein. Well, it's, it's fascinating you explain it that way because usually people talk about their background and then that leads to the book. You've basically inverted that. So I guess we need to take a step back now. It says, what led you to this uh, book as a, as a topic, which then subsequently led to your career as a tax attorney? <laughs> um, yeah, maybe I'm putting uh, putting some um, there's some 2020 hindsight in all this. But I came to this book. I was doing a PhD in history at UCLA, working in the field of U.S. foreign relations, um, sort of broadly defined, searching for a topic um, in post World War II era. Uh, had been reading a lot of the. I guess now it's sort of an older generation of historiography on the history of development, things like Nils Gilman's Mandarins of the Future. Um, David Ekblad at the time had a very good dissertation that's now a book on the history of American development efforts, um, uh, a number of other scholars, and was searching for a topic therein. Also had this interest in the history of human rights and uh, history of US foreign policy. I came across some debates between the Carter administration and 
the World Bank in the 1970s over the World Bank's lending to um, authoritarian governments. Um, when I was looking at the his- doing something on the history of human rights, and I um, there was a conflict between the World Bank that wanted to lend to countries like um, Pinochet's Chile, um, and the and the Carter administration and American um, Congress people um, who who didn't want that to happen because of human rights issues. And I was shocked to see the name Robert McNamara associated with the World Bank. I had known of Robert McNamara, like many people, as the Secretary of Defense under Kennedy and Johnson and the, one of the architects of the Vietnam War and had loved Errol Morris's documentary on him, The Fog of War. Thought he was sort of a weird, fascinating, but mainly weird kind of person. Um, but who occupied this really interesting place in American history. And here he is showing up at the World Bank. And so that uh, that sparked my interest in learning more about it. And so I, you know, I remember distinctly going to the library looking for the book or books on Robert McNamara's presidency of the World Bank and not finding really anything and saying, okay, well, here's a nice dissertation topic. I'm going to delve in. So that's sort of how I came to the topic. I, uh, um, came to discover that actually doing historical research on the World Bank was more time-consuming and difficult than one might expect, because at the time, the bank had uh, very limited access policy for outside researchers. Um, It was hard to get uh, into the archives, so it took a number of months of prodding for me to even get my foot in the door at the archives. Um, And once there, uh, it was clear that not a lot of people had actually done historical research in the World Bank archives. So um, all of the archivists are great um, and had a really good time uh, and found a ton of materials. Um, It was clear that this was really untrodden ground. So there was uh, just a lot of kind of the basics of of actually doing the research that were um, and getting access that were pretty interesting. Since I wrote the book, the World Bank's really modernized its um, access policy and archives policy, a lot of the documents that I refer to in the book are now actually available online. Um, they've digitized a ton of things. So um, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a real exercise in actually getting into this international organization that not a lot of people have actually studied from a historical perspective. Hmm. So you're talking about how this kind of this surprise, you know, when you first encounter Robert McNamara with the World Bank, and it is definitely part of his uh, of his biography that doesn't get quite as much attention as his uh, earlier career does. I was wondering if you could perhaps start us off by talking a bit about uh, who Robert McNamara was uh, when he becomes president of the World Bank in 1968. What led him to that point and what led him to this rather seemingly uh, incongruous association with the institution of the World Bank? Robert McNamara was... Uh, in 1968, when he takes over the presidency of the World Bank, the outgoing Secretary of Defense for President Lyndon Johnson. And he is a um, embattled Secretary of Defense. He is a Secretary of Defense who is, according to many people, on the verge of a nervous breakdown because of the Vietnam War. Uh, by 1968, Vietnam is not going well from the U.S. perspective. Um, McNamara is very aware of this. Um, He's aware of this at the same time that he and others are um, still 
prosecuting the war are still telling the American people that the war is winnable and being won. Um, but at the same time, McNamara, you know, he knows this. He's a guy who is um, emotional. He, um, he clearly wants out. He's friends with Robert Kennedy, who, uh, as you know, was going to challenge Johnson for the nomination. And uh, all of this combines to make McNamara really kind of increasingly unpopular figure um, within the administration. And it's a, it's a diff, it presents Johnson with a really difficult situation because you have one of your highest ranking, most prominent cabinet officials who is more or less advocating behind the scenes for winding down the Vietnam War, who's, who's not emotionally stable, who's flirting with supporting a rival for um, the upcoming primary battle. Um, what do you do with somebody like this? You can't fire him and just cut him loose because who knows what will happen. Um, you don't want to keep him in the administration because he's an ineffective cabinet secretary. So uh, this opportunity presents itself to transition McNamara to the presidency of the World Bank. Um, it's, it's a weird thing. I mean, since McNamara's time, we've kind of come to discover that the World Bank presidency is this sort of nice little perch that American presidents can park people in. Um, the U.S. president, for historical reasons, has a prerogative to basically select the bank's president, and the other member countries of the bank more or less have always rubber-stamped the the U.S. president's choice. Um, so it's you know it's a it's almost a position of um, of patronage that uh, that Johnson um, puts McNamara in, and and it's it's an advantageous position for Johnson to put McNamara in because the World Bank president is technically not supposed to speak about the internal politics of 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 its countries, and so. Johnson and McNamara both are able to use the this, the bank presidency as a way to avoid uh, people talking about or people questioning McNamara about Vietnam. McNamara wants this too. I mean, they're both independently. Um, as the record, you know, that I was able to uncover shows that um, the outgoing World Bank president in, sort of independently approached both McNamara and Johnson with this idea. He was retiring, and he, he thought McNamara would be a good um, steward of the organization after him. And um, excuse me, and, uh, and it's attractive to McNamara because McNamara, for uh, as emotional as he is, as uh, much as he's starting to oppose the American involvement in Vietnam, is um, he's a team. He's a he's a he's an organizational man. He's not going to speak out against the president directly if he if he is able to avoid it. So it's a he sort of eased into this role as a way to keep him quiet about Vietnam, more or less. You've already alluded to some of the aspects of this transition that make it uh, what it was. For example, the president's role in appointing uh, uh, the, the president of the World Bank and so forth. I was wondering if we could maybe take a step back and talk a bit about 
what the World Bank was, specifically what it was in, 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 in the 1960s. And, uh, you know, how did it, uh, what was the role that it was designed to play? What was it about it that made the presidency of it so appealing to Robert McNamara? Yeah, good question. At the time, the World Bank was not nearly as prominent an institution as it is today. I mean, I'm saying it's prominent. Maybe in some circles it is, some circles it isn't. But the World Bank was sort of the baby sister of the IMF, both the International Monetary Fund. Both were created at the Bretton Woods Conference um, toward in 1944, the later stages of the Second World War. The, the World Bank's specific focus was to basically provide funding, either loans or grants, uh, loans on favorable terms, to, to governments, first in um, the rebuilding governments of Western Europe after the war, and then to, quote unquote, developing countries, for development projects, infrastructure projects mainly in the first few decades of its existence. So the World Bank was this. It was a bank in many ways. It was a bank or a fund that would um, issue its own uh, debt. It would raise capital by issuing debt securities on private markets. It would also raise funds from governments, and it would use the, this, this money to make favorable loans or outright grants to governments. And the governments, the idea was the governments would use this money along with technical experts that the bank would provide to build dams and, and ports, highways, sometimes to do studies of a country's economic policies, all with the idea of helping these countries uh, develop and grow. And the, the real big animating idea behind this was we don't want economic conditions to deteriorate as they had done before World War II and lead to another world war. So um, the idea, and that idea is still sort of what basically animates the bank. Um, and the interesting thing is that at the time, you know, despite this kind of these lofty ideals and this fairly expansive mandate. At the time McNamara took over the World Bank in 1968, the bank was was actually fairly uh, a fairly conservative organization. So I had mentioned just now that the bank raised the bulk of its funds by issuing its own debt securities on private capital markets. What this meant, really, from the bank's perspective, was that its primary focus as an institution was making sure that people bought its securities, that it that these people, you know, it funded the bank. And this meant that the bank's primary allegiance was to Wall Street, which is where the private capital markets were in the first decades after World War II. And in turn, what this meant was that the bank was very focused on telling investors, making it clear to investors that it was only uh, engaging, it was only using their money for quote unquote, credit worthy projects. And so what this, this resulted in was that the bank's operations, it's quote unquote development work in the first few decades was fairly limited. It, it really only operated in some of the better off developing countries. So we had mentioned Western Europe at first, the Marshall Plan sort of superseded the bank's role in Western Europe. And then the bank started uh, working in better off developing countries, um, not the poorest of the poor, certainly not a lot of the, what were still then colonial territories. Uh, and and in those countries, in these better off countries, only funding things that sort of had t 
tangible rates of return, things that you know were considered bankable projects like these dams, construction of ports, etc. Um, so the the bank by the time McNamara took it over was sort of a, a little bit of a institution that had a lot of untapped potential in the sense that it had a very broad, expansive mandate. It it had a lot of um, technical expertise, people who knew developing countries. Um, but it, it was still an institution that was kind of wedded to American private capital and focused on really not doing too much, lest it you know, undermine its act, undermine its own creditworthiness. Um, it was sort of, you could think of it kind of as like just an ex, sort of a charitable arm of a, of a, of a, of a bank or something like that. Um, wasn't really the big development institution that we know now. And, and McNamara's major kind of contribution to the, to the world bank is he, he took this sort of small parochial conservative institution and, and unleashed it, made it, made its self-conception much broader said we need to do development broadly defined all over the world uh, he was able to, to to get away with this because his one of his first and most astute moves was to really expand the bank's funding branch out from the american capital markets into western europe and japan um, raise more funds from governments i mean the, he had a very ambitious fundraising drive that meant that the bank wasn't really that concerned about where it was getting money for most of its tenure and could fund a number of different things. So not just a bigger lending program, but lending in new, lending for new types of things. Like, let, so yeah, I'll stop there. But, um, but, but so by the time McNamara takes over the bank, sort of a small conservative institution, not nearly what we know today, he leaves it really kind of like what we know today as this as the main player in international development. Now, was this something that he uh, had this agenda to establish from the moment he came in, or was it that he had received this position and he started to think, well, what can I do with this? Or, or how, how can I use this to uh, a, a, a address these problems that, that I think are out there? I think there's a, there's a bit of both, and there's a third factor which is he was an ambitious person also looking to make a name for himself or redeem his name after Vietnam and just was used to running large, large, expansive organizations. So he, one of the reasons that he was on the, the radar to become World Bank president uh, was because in 1966 he delivered a, a speech entitled The Essence of Security that in which he said that the essence of, of security, of peace, is not military um, security. It's not, uh, it's not tanks and guns. Um, it's, it's butter. It's international development. It's making sure that there aren't conditions of poverty around the world. So he had already internalized the animating mission of the World Bank, which is Make sure economic conditions are good to avoid war. He came in with that mindset, so he was a perfect fit for the mindset of the of the World Bank when he got there, and and he really believed it. If anything, the experience in Vietnam probably seared in him a desire to promote development, thinking that this was the only way that the Western world could ensure that 
poorer parts of the world wouldn't erupt into conflict like it happened in Vietnam. So he had this animating mission. The second thing is he was probably the core aspect of Robert McNamara's character was that he was an organization man. He was an institution builder. So he had his, his earlier career, he had kind of risen to prominence as a guy who was um, an officer in the U.S. Army Air Force in World War II, known for his statistical analysis. He had been trained in statistical analysis and management. Transitioned to become an executive at the Ford Motor Company, and along with other, the other whiz kids, quote-unquote whiz kids, um, had helped to... Uh, how to help to save Ford from bankruptcy after World War II. And so his focus was he was a corporate manager, really. Um, he took those ideas, that mindset, to the Pentagon. And putting aside the Vietnam War, he had a hugely influential legacy on the institution of the Defense Department itself in instituting certain budgeting techniques, etc. So McNamara not only had the basic mindset of a kind of classic uh, mid-century believer in development and security, but also was a guy who just had a, had a career of coming into institutions and building them up and changing the way they operated. And that raises and, an interesting question. Sorry to cut you off, but it raises interesting questions. How does the bank receive him? Because he has this reputation now. He's He's not just... Uh, some guy who is 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 maybe a little bit obscure or only known in certain circles, but he has this. He's one of the most prominent men in America. He has this reputation. Were they uh, happy to have uh, such a person in their leadership? Were they a little bit wary of him? Were they, <laughs> you know, pro, you know, basically accusing him of being a baby killer the moment he walked in the door? How, how did how did how was he accepted by the people that were had been working at the bank for years? Uh, um, the latter. He was not uh, welcome. Uh, People were not happy that Robert McNamara, of all people, was going to become president of the World Bank because putting aside, you know, his what we now know about his emotional state, that he sort of considered himself a, a soft-hearted humanitarian and and you know, was aligned with the basic mission of the World Bank. The World Bank was staffed at the time with a lot of people who were uh, opposed to the Vietnam War. And so for Robert McNamara, of all people, to, to now come in as your boss was not welcome news for a lot of people at the World Bank. I think there was, in addition to that, a knowledge that this was a guy who shook up institutions and could be a very hard-driving manager. So there was a lot of fear on the part of the staff when he was when Lyndon Johnson announced that he was going to take over. And I actually – you know, the fear was somewhat um, – it was it was somewhat logical and it actually played out in many ways because McNamara was a hard driving leader and he did transform the bank's internal processes and management structure. So people were wary. But one of McNamara's greatest achievements at the bank really was was that he he pretty much turned everybody onto his side within a few years of being of of entering the bank. So people who had been sort of critical of the appointment had been wary of this Defense Department official coming in and running the bank. You know, they quickly uh, they 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 came to to support McNamara. McNamara was reelected multiple times to the bank presidency, 
and the staff more or less um, really, really loved him, um, really thought he was a great leader of the institution. And this, I think it's attributable to many different things. One thing is if you have a boss who's actually raise, raising the prominence of your institution and, and advocating for you and what you, that what you do is important and is bringing in lots of money, that person's going to be popular. And I think that was a great sense of growth during the first years of McNamara's presidency, that this guy was actually really building up this institution. It's not to say that this, this was sort of a frictionless process. I think that McNamara en engendered the opposition of staff over time for a, a number of different reasons, but it didn't really have to do with Vietnam or his own personal history. I think people realized that this was a guy who was actually um, very impacted emotionally by the Vietnam War, who, um, who he felt terrible about it, and, and he wore his heart on his sleeve, and people could tell that this had really torn him asunder. And so they were willing to cut him some slack with respect to Vietnam. Staff came to um, resist some of his management techniques and some of this drive to expand the bank into doing more and more and more. Um, because as I, as I talk about in the book, McNamara's drive to do more and more and more, have the bank lend to more countries for more things, to do more studies of this and that, um, engendered a decline in the quality of the bank's work. Um, there just weren't that many good bankable projects to do. And so staff came to resent the fact that they were being told to push, basically push loans on developing countries for projects that didn't really exist or shouldn't have been funded. So there was a, there was a more substantive critique of McNamara's presidency that came from the staff over time. But, you know, remarkably, he, for people who were paying attention to him at the World Bank, he, he really short, sort of shed the image as um, the architect of the Vietnam War. And, and people came to sort of really think of him as a guy who was invested in this development project. I, that's what I thought was really uh, fascinating about your description of when he comes in, which was that he, has, he definitely builds up the World Bank. And, but you describe how in the ways in which he does it, he you know, sets these goals, he wants these numbers. He, he has this, uh, uh, this toolkit of ways of building a, an, an organization and, and making it effective. And a lot of people in the World Bank were feeling like, well, uh, uh, you know, you quote a couple people were like basically saying, we're generating statistics to generate statistics. We're not actually necessarily, you know, achieving the, the, the stated purpose of, of the bank. But as you also described, that was something that was that seemed to be evolving as the world itself was changing in the 1970s. Exactly. You know, totally. I think one of the. um one of the undercurrents of this story of Robert McNamara's time at the World Bank is that the world, as you mentioned, is, was changing in, in a number of different ways over the 1970s. So McNamara was president from 1968 to 1981. It's a pretty interesting uh, and tumultuous time in, in, we can call it the international political economy, right? Because um, you have, broadly speaking, you have sort of the beginning of the decline of American hegemony, economic hegemony at least, um, detente. Uh, you have the early signs of the rise of China. There are oil crises and the sort of attendant to that uh, emergence of a voice on the part of many developing countries and advocacy for greater rights in the international arena. Um, with respect to development itself, the idea of development, what is that? Um, 
how should we do it? Should we do it? That changes tremendously over the course of the 1970s. And it's really related to Vietnam as well. I mean, at least in the United States and parts of the Western world, the idea that the world's most powerful country couldn't achieve its goals in, in, in Vietnam, nation building wasn't just something you could just snap your fingers and do, no matter how much money you threw at it or technical expertise you threw at it. In many ways, sort of undercut, uh, it called into question the idea that, that you could do nation building anywhere, right? And so you have a turn towards, I don't want to say isolationism, but you have a turn away from nation building, ambitious nation building efforts, ambitious development efforts um, on the part of many people in Western in the Western world, uh, this has an impact on the bank because government support in a number of countries for the World Bank declines. The, the academic thinking about what is development changes to where you get the beginnings really of um, a, a conservative critique of development um, efforts. Uh, which is now much broader than a conservative critique. But the idea that g just giving aid to central governments is not going to really put them on a path to economic growth. Uh, in fact, it could exacerbate problems. That critique emerges from both the left and the right over the course of the 1970s. Uh, and it's a valid critique. Um, so the bank has to navigate that. 70s are also fascinating, right? Because you have uh, a, f a flowering of human rights movement. Um, uh, in development, you have the emergence of a, what's called women in development or a gendered critique of dominant development paradigms, which we now kind of think of simplistically as, well, don't give men the money because they'll drink it away, but give it to women because they'll actually invest it. Um, and and, and um, all of these have a really profound impact on the World Bank in both big and little ways. Uh, big ways, like we talked about at the beginning of the show, you have you know, governments like the United States governments in the mid to late 70s, uh, Congress people, and even the Carter administration saying, we're not going to give money to the bank if it's lending to certain governments. The bank shouldn't be giving money to authoritarian governments. And you have the bank pushing back saying, look, economic development is a different question than political freedom. Just because a regime is torturing its people doesn't mean that we shouldn't do everything we can to make sure that people aren't starving in those countries. It was also interesting to think about it, the, the what you describe in the book, when you're seeing another broad change being not just the oil crisis, but the rise of the uh, you know, oil states. You're seeing the move towards neoliberalism. These are all trends that you know, given the, the, the uh, World Bank and, and the large American role in it, you know, could have meant the demise of the bank, or at least its 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 minimization. And yet, you describe how during this period, that not only is it growing as an institution, but McNamara under, under McNamara's leadership, it's 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 actually uh, surfing the trends. It, it's it, it's it's borrowing money from Iran. It's it's it, it you know it's convincing him to lend. It, it's it's actually you know adapting in some ways surprisingly well to an environment that would is in so many ways very hostile to it. Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought that up, Mark, and I think you stated it really well. So, and it's a, it's a more subtle part of the book, and I, in in retrospect, I wish I had foregrounded this a little bit more. But 
what happens, uh, putting aside Robert McNamara's personality and all this kind of baggage and stuff, just thinking about the World Bank in the 1970s is pretty interesting because you have an institution just folk, you know, in and of itself that's growing in tremendous ways. At the same time, you have it in really in, in, in context uh, relative to broader changes in the world. It's actually declining in importance in a lot of ways. So the 70s, the most you know, tangible way that this um, manifests is that the, a lot of countries in the 70s, because the international capital markets sort of begin to reemerge after decades where it was hard to get private capital from abroad if you're a developing country. Now, a lot of countries don't need to go to the World Bank to get funds. They can go to, you know, um, to private banks from Wall Street. And this is part of the story of, you know, after the oil rich states, um, after the first oil crisis in 73, 74, they channel their extra funds often through Western banks. And those Western banks are sitting on a lot of cash and they lend it out on private terms to developing countries. So the bank's actual role as a, as a financier declines in many ways in the 1970s. And it's, it, you see this reflected very clearly in the internal discussions among bank leadership about, um, holy crap, what do we do? Like, how do we keep our organization relevant when we still believe very strongly in our mission? We still believe, you know, we still want to, to be ambitious and we want our organization to be, um, you know, to be used. What do you do when, when countries are like a country like Brazil is saying, Thanks, but no thanks. I mean, we. This is very. You know, these ideas, these these issues are are resonate a lot today. Obviously, because, you know, we talk about people talk about the rise of China, um, negating the importance of of World Bank and other Western sources of aid because you know countries in Africa can borrow from China, uh, without conditions, um, where they can't do that for the bank. So McNamara and other bank officials are very conscious of this conundrum where they have a growing institution that at the same time is becoming less important in many respects. And what they do is they say, look, our competitive advantage in the world of sort of development finance is we are the experts. We have, and one of McNamara's legacies at the bank is he recruited a lot of economists um, and, the and sort of turned the bank into a research center for development. Um, it's an interesting place because it's a sort of an applied research institution because it's got a lot of people researching development and it's doing a lot of development. And it's really um, an unparalleled institution in the sense that if you're really, really interested in development, um, you're, you're not going to be able to avoid the World Bank. I mean, it is the intellectual player there. And this is a conscious decision on the part of McNamara and others to ratchet up the budgets for research and development, um, for research, excuse me, at the bank, um, because this is what they recognize as their competitive advantage. And so in the mid to late 1970s, the bank sort of pivots um, towards uh, knowledge production. It's easy to overstate a lot of this because the bank had always been engaged in research and knowledge production, um, but you, you see concrete steps that McNamara and other bank leaders take in the mid to late 1970s to sort of put the bank um, in a more prominent place in the intellectual um, realm. 
And this, this means not just publishing more studies and uh, introducing big sort of flagship publications like the World Development Report, um, which is introduced largely as part of this drive to make the bank an intellectual center. But you also see it in the bank really saying, look, we need to have our experts in the room with developing country officials, government officials, advising them about policy. We might not be able to, you know, we might not be the first choice for funding for building a dam, but we are the experts in um, economic policy advising. And so this leads over the course of the 1970s into a sort of shift in the basic orientation of the bank. Um, to put it really crudely, if put it really cr crudely, at, at the start of McNamara's tenure, the bank of the 1950s and 60s was a bank that lent, it just it gave money to poor countries to build ports and dams. Two, by the end of the 1970s, the bank was doing that and also doing a bunch of other kinds of lending. But it's what it really valued most highly was its ability to give broad-based loans to governments as a way to get in the door with those governments um, and advise them about how they should change their macroeconomic policies. So it's a, it's, a, it's a subtle but profound shift. And it's in many ways what the bank still does, it still values most highly is that, and it's, and it's a logical decision. I mean, the thinking in the bank is, uh, what's, what's the best way to promote economic growth um, and poverty alleviation in, in a country? Well, it's not necessarily to fund um, one-off projects, but it's actually to create the right policy environment in which the country can succeed. So it's a logical move, and it's and the bank is pushed in this direction by the fact that um, its its money is not going as far as it used to. But it has all sorts of negative consequences, and I sort of touch upon it in the book. It's it's the the big negative consequence is the turn towards what's called structural adjustment lending, that really coincides with. Uh, the third world debt crisis that breaks out in the 1980s. And, the, and, and it, it has to do essentially with the types of policy advice that the bank actually was giving in conjunction with the IMF, um, which is a turn toward austerity um, and, and liberalization at a time when a lot of developing countries um, were mired in debt crises. So the idea, which is again resonant to what's happened over the past 10 years in other contexts, is that um, you're going to have to cut your way out of debt, which we know today, I mean, any right thinking person knows today, that's not correct. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's just not how it works. I mean, and, and it in many ways exacerbates, um, it exacerbates fiscal and economic problems in countries that are struggling. You need stimulus at a time of debt. But um, I've, I've said a lot, there's a lot to unpack. The big thing that you, Mark, you were totally right, though, and that I think I really wish I had said more explicitly in the book is that there the real profound shift in the world bank the real profound transformation is not that mcnamara um that mcnamara creates at the world bank is not growing it into a bigger institution it's in transforming its mindset away from 
just lending for development projects to being a kind of development advisor. Uh, and that's the and, kind of thing that required him to have a large organization, more economists, more specialists to uh, provide that technical expertise that might be a little short on the ground in the countries where they're lending. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, um, yeah, there was a whole, whole bunch of shortcomings in the, in the actual execution of this strategy, but the, but the strategy, that was the strategy. I was wondering if we could maybe go back a bit to something you talked about, which is uh, the introduction of structural adjustment, which you said is is one of the uh, bigger legacies of McNamara's tenure. I was wondering if you could maybe take a step back and explain what it is, and specifically McNamara's role in uh, introducing it. Because as you explain it in the book, I, I actually uh, had to, uh, it, it, was, it was rather amusing to see how it was kind of this understated introduction, and it, yet as you uh, have already explained, it has this. It ends up becoming this huge legacy of his time as the as the uh, World Bank president. Definitely. So structural adjustment. Before I had delved into the research of this book, I had heard the term structural adjustment or structural adjustment lending, and it was usually in the context of, oh God, that IMF is doing another structural adjustment lending program with another developing country and it's isn't this horrible um but i didn't know much more I delved into the literature a bit and structural adjustment lending what it is is a term for it and it's 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 a broad term but it's a term basically for imf which was the bank's sort of big sister institution that also did some sort of that basically financed governments and advised them on policy um, and the world banks programs whereby these institutions will provide financing packages to a government that's in trouble for whatever reason and as conditions for that financing will require the government to undertake a host of policy reforms, economic policy reforms that are intended to put that country on a sound economic footing. So the prototypical structural adjustment lending program would be IMF and and or World Bank make a, you know, however many hundred million dollar loan to X government and this loan will be in quote unquote tranches. It will be it will be in stages. The first stage will be, we'll give you the money, but to get the second stage, you need to um, increase your taxes because you need to reduce your budget deficit. You need to cut your spending, again, because you need to reduce your budget deficit. And cutting spending means, it's really where the action happens. It means um, laying off uh, government workers. Um, it means reducing various subsidies. Um, other things, you need to liberalize your trade regime. So reduce your um, import tariffs, for instance. No more protecting your domestic industry from the international markets. Um, you might need to let your currency float. Um, uh, to, to, and, and so what this is sort of doing is attempting to put recipient countries on a sound fiscal footing. And the sound fiscal and economic footing is kind of the classic um, wash, quote unquote Washington consensus that um, these countries need to be open to international capital flows. They need to have, they need to be running small or non-existent budget deficits. 
um, all as a way of basically stimulating private investment into their countries because that's you know that's 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 how countries grow right so that's the the basic idea and so i delve a little further into the literature okay structural adjustment lending this typical story is that it flourished in the 1980s it kind of came to fruition in the 1980s when latin america was experiencing a huge debt crisis and the western world the us specifically sort of promoted these structural adjustment packages as um uh, as you know as both a way to sort of bail out these countries from their economic problems but also as a way to kind of turn them into sort of <laughs> um economic colonies right that's a very um inartful way of putting it but but as a way to kind of promote what was considered necessary policy reform when i got into the materials doing this book i had i had always thought of the, the okay this is something that emerges as a result of the latin american debt crisis that breaks out in 1981-82 and something that was really promoted mainly by the IMF rather than the World Bank. What the documents actually reveal, the archives actually reveal is that <clears throat> although the World Bank and IMF had been doing sort of proto structural adjustment lending throughout their history, the real program of structural adjustment lending is an invention of Robert McNamara's that predates the debt crisis. And it ties into what we were just talking about about the bank trying to figure out ways where it could kind of get more bang for its buck and get in the room with developing country officials and advise them on economic policy. So the story that I tell in the book is that this sort of emerged for a bunch of different reasons. Um, one of the main reasons was over the course of the 70s, the bank itself was becoming increasingly frustrated, not just with the fact that developing countries weren't listening to it um, and that its money wasn't going far enough, but also that the actual development projects that it was funding, um, the anti-poverty projects that it had started to fund, giving money to small farmers, building uh, public housing projects, they weren't really having a... a um, the expected impact on reducing poverty levels or increasing growth. And the explanation that the bank staff and officials had for this was that nothing could be achieved unless developing countries had the right policy environment in which to carry out development. So it was basically a waste of time and money to fund um, programs to, to whatever, say whatever it is, build, build primary schools in Kenya when the Kenyan government was, you know, was protecting its industry, was running huge budget deficits, uh, was 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 kind of a sclerotic, um, ineffective, inefficient economy. Why should we waste our time building schools when we should be advising the, the government on its macroeconomic policy? And and it's it's and the bank officials are very clear that this is their understanding of what's kind of gone wrong in development, and this is the way that things should move forward. And they actually formalize a program called structural adjustment um, in the late 1970s, saying, "Look, we're going to instead of we're going to define the quote-unquote pro development project um, much more broadly. So instead of lending 100 million dollars to build um, a bunch of schools in a country, 100 million might be an exaggeration. We're going to give that loan to the central government." and just say this is a broad-based sort of budgetary support uh, loan that we're giving you. But the strings attached are 
you need to reform your policies along the lines that we tell you to. And uh, and and the bank was not supposed to be in the business of doing this. In fact, it's it's governing documents kind of mandated that it only lend for specific development projects. So there was some sort of there were sort of legal impediments that the bank <laughs> officials had to skirt to get this. They they essentially lied to the bank's board, which sort of the the formal people in charge of the World Bank are the are the mem are its member governments. The the sort of bank secretariat led by Robert McNamara sort of lied and said you know, this program of structural adjustment lending, it's just a temporary thing. It's going to be small scale. Um, we're, we're still a project lending institution. Um, but they had already, by the late 70s, sort of started envisioning uh, structural adjustment lending as kind of where the bank was headed. And the IMF was headed in this way as well. And and so even before the Latin American debt crisis breaks out in the early 1980s, the bank had started making structural adjustment loans. But once the dam breaks in the early 1980s and a lot of governments now all of a sudden have a really acute need for this broad-based quick budgetary support, um, structural adjustment sort of just takes off at both the bank and the IMF. So it's got an interesting prehistory that is not you know, structural adjustments, not the simple, it's not the simple story of this was a, this was sort of the Western world's response to debt crises. It's actually a little more complicated in the sense that this was kind of the way that the thinking about development had evolved to, we need to actually get in there and tell developing countries how to run their countries. And what I find fascinating about that is that in some ways it is one of the largest legacies of Robert McNamara's entire career in public service. And yet it, it we, it, it's so it, it's overlooked in a way that uh, things like say his, his you know, tenure dealing with budgets at the, at the defense department or not. You know, I don't know why this part of McNamara's history has been so understudied. In fact, he himself rarely spoke about his time at the World Bank. It's surprising, right? Because you would think this is something he would be proud of on the surface. He would be proud of being the leader of this prominent development institution. I mean, they do good works, right? And um, it would help kind of erase some of the legacy of Vietnam. I don't have a good explanation of for why <laughs> he didn't talk about it. You, you and I were talking a little bit before the show that one of the explanations for why other people have not maybe written about this as much is that sort of the economic sphere is a little bit alien to a lot of people and, and things, these terms like development or budget deficits or lending capital markets are a little out of the wheelhouse for many diplomatic historians, for many historians of American foreign relations. Um, they're out of my wheelhouse. I didn't take any economics classes in college to my chagrin. Um, but, um, I think there is something to be said for the fact that we've we've tended to have a very specific focus on kind of diplomatic history. Um, there's a much less developed, although very rich, scholarship on kind of U.S. foreign economic policy. I think this fits, broadly speaking, into that kind of historiography about U.S. and Western foreign economic 
policy. I mean, this is sort of where the that literature about development that I was talking about earlier kind of emerged, and that that literature has still continued to flourish. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know why, you know, I did research at the Library of Congress to look through McNamara's papers. That's where his his personal papers are. And there are, um, if anyone's interested in the fog of war, there are a lot of materials related to the fog of war um, in the Library of Congress, in the McNamara papers. And Errol Morris, the, the filmmaker of Fog of War, did interview McNamara about the World Bank. He didn't really say, they didn't really cover anything interesting beyond sort of the basic kind of like, oh, I built up the World Bank in this, but they did cover it. I don't know why it didn't end up making it into the movie. Um, I don't know why, I mean, because it certainly could have been a very interesting kind of um, epilogue to McNamara's story. I think it is a really interesting epilogue or a sequel, if you will, um, to his time at the, at the, Department of Defense, because you see the same mistakes repeated. You see the same basic mindset um, that, you know, we need to intervene in a developing country, whether it's militarily or economically, just because we know best and we need to make sure that they're they're doing what we tell them to do. And this is couched in a humanitarian rhetoric, but it's, it's a really sort of imperialistic message. Um, the same sort of types of internal management controls and processes, the focus on quantification, all this type of stuff is like very present at the World Bank. And and maybe that's why McNamara didn't want to talk about it because he knew at the end of the day, this was like really not that different and it wouldn't be that redeeming um, if people really knew what happened at the World Bank um, when he was president. Hmm. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? <laughs> Besides practicing tax law, uh, I am not working on any big projects. I My practice as a lawyer takes up too much time, but I do have a number of topics. I'm very interested. I mean, we passed a new, U.S. passed a new tax bill in 2017. It's the one thing that the Trump uh, administration and the Congress actually managed to get passed. And it's a, in the world of tax law, it's a very kind of profound event that has shaken up a lot of things. I see it daily in practice. And so I have some papers that I'm working on that are geared towards tax lawyers and tax law academics. But um, one day I would like to get back to this sort of history, political economy history. Um, and maybe, you know, I've thought about, I think there's room for people to write a history of the changes, changing thinking of international development in the 1970s. It was when I was struggling to get access to the World Bank archives, I thought a potential project would be just to look at the ways in which economists and others reconceptualized development over the course of the 1970s. There's been a lot of great work done on the history of development. It's too many people to name um, that have written great books about it. So there's a lot of um, the ground has been covered already, but I would like to do that at some point. Well, I hope you have an opportunity to get to that sooner rather than later. Me too. Thanks, Mark. <laughs> oh, you're very welcome. Well, Patrick, thank you very much for taking some time out of your uh, schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. You too, Mark. Take care. <laughs>